So we are live and recording. Thanks for coming back to Bible Journey. And we are beginning our trek through the book of Acts. And then from there, we're actually going to go on beyond the Bible and look at some of the documents from the early church. Some of, some of them didn't make it into the Bible. Some of them were never meant to be part of the Bible. But uh, that's where we're going. But for the next few weeks, we are in the book of Acts. And as I was saying earlier, um, we're not going to have the time to go verse by verse here. We're looking at the big picture. And we want to answer questions, uh, or at least address questions, like what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? And what, in fact, is the church? Um, I don't know if I said this last time, but I'll, I'll repeat myself if I did. You know, when Jesus said uh, to Peter, um, yeah, you know, Peter, you got the right answer. Good for you. Um, and on this rock, I'm going to build my church. And at that point, I'm sure, though it didn't get recorded in the Gospels, I'm sure someone in the group said, excuse me, what's a church? Right? Because that concept was new at the time. And so, uh, so here we go. Um, we're looking at the book of Acts, and today we're doing uh, chapters 1 through 9. Now, you're getting an outline... And uh, another thing that's going to be a little bit different this time from the way I used to do it is I'm not putting the outline on the PowerPoint because you have it in front of you or if you, uh, you'll get into the habit of printing it out or whatever, you'll get that by email. So rather than trying to put the outline on the PowerPoint, I'm just going to focus on pictures to give us a visual for, um, for what we're talking about. My apologies to those of you listening uh, by podcast. I know there are some as far away as the UK. Uh, and so appreciate that, but um, we haven't figured out a way to add the pictures to the podcast yet. Maybe someday we'll do that. Anyway, um, so today is the uh, we're doing the first nine chapters of the book of Acts, so that gives you an idea of how, uh, how big picture we're going here. Um, now, you already know this, but I'm going to say it anyway. Acts is the sequel to the book of Luke, written by the same author, that wrote the gospel uh, according to Luke. It's the sequel to the gospel story, and he literally picks up where he left off. And he, in fact, even says, the story that I started, I am now continuing. And he addresses it to someone named Theophilus, which may be a real person, or it may be a name that, uh, it, it simply means, you know, friend of God. And so it may be a name that simply addresses anyone who might be reading this text. Now, we're going to follow the structure of the book of Acts that goes geographically. And what I mean by that is when you read the beginning of Acts, and I'm specifically talking about chapter 1, verse 8. This is some of Jesus' last words to the apostles, and he says this, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, throughout Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And then after he says this, he he ascends. So um, he talks about the apostles will be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And what we have here is a kind of um, ever-widening ring of concentric circles. And that's how we're going to study the book of Acts. Right in concentric circles. And so we start in Ju- Jerusalem. And if you can see this map, um, I'm not sure it's perfectly focused actually, but uh, if you can see this map, of course, Jerusalem is fuzzy, um, but it's here. And then Judea is the area in which we find Jerusalem. And then you go beyond that and you move out into Samaria, and here's Galilee, and then up here is Syria and Antioch's up there. So we have this spread of the gospel that we read about in the book of Acts in terms of these uh, you know, widening concentric circles. And so we're going to take it in four chunks. And today we are doing Jerusalem and Judea with some overlap into the next phase because I wanted us to get to the uh, so-called conversion of Paul or Saul. As you know, that's in chapter 9. And, uh, and I, wanted to, I wanted us to get to Paul today. And we're going to do a little bit of an introduction to Paul as well. Um, 
Then we're going to go to uh, Samaria and the coastal region, which includes the, the port city of Caesarea. And then from there, we're going to go to Antioch and Asia Minor. And, uh, and so I've got pictures here. So this is, well, this is the temple in Jerusalem or a model of it. And so we start in Jerusalem. And by the way, this, this main part of the temple, the interior, the Holy of Holies, you know, the, the Bible gives the dimensions of that space. Do you know what other space is built to those exact same dimensions? The, uh, this, the, the size of this room here, what other room, chapel, is exactly that size? The Sistine Chapel, right. Okay, that's right. The Sistine Chapel was built to be the exact same size. And so if you come to Rome with me, you'll stand inside the Sistine Chapel. Maybe some of you already have. And um, you will, uh, you'll, you'll feel the sense of the size of that space. Um, here we have Judea. The, uh, the hill country of Judea, there's a shepherd with some sheep there. So we move out of the city into the country, uh, countryside around the city. Uh, this is actually Samaria, uh, what it looks like today, but it's uh, getting even a little bit hillier, I think. This is Caesarea, and I mentioned that Caesarea was a port city. This, of course, is a, is a picture of what it looks like now, but you can see how... Um, the, the Romans built a port here to be the place where the Roman ships would come in. And so this became the sort of headquarters of the Roman officials when, um, when they were in charge here. And so uh, Pontius Pilate's head office, for example, was not in Jerusalem, it was in Caesarea. As we move farther out, then we this is Antioch, and obviously those are houses, that's what it looks like now. Um, Antioch is... Um, one of the major cities of the ancient world in Syria. And then from there we move on to Asia Minor, which um, now I'm giving you a map. But Asia Minor is the, uh, the, the name for what is now called basically Turkey. So if you can see here, we have this area that you would call uh, Israel or Palestine, and then Syria here, so Antioch's here. And then this is Asia Minor. It says Asia on the map, but it's, it's Asia Minor. And then from there, finally, Greece and on to Rome. Because the ends of the earth were, was the, the, ends, the, the, the furthermost expanse of the Roman Empire. Um, that's the way they thought of it. And so, um, and so when we get to talking about Antioch and Asia Minor, we're going to be looking at um, Paul's first missionary journey. And then when we get to Greece and Rome, we're going to look at his second and third journeys. And then, of course, when he goes to Rome, he goes to Rome in chains. Are all the uh, areas in Asia Minor, going by these different names, geographic divisions or simply provincial? Well, yeah, they're provinces. They're, um, you know, they're, they're political divisions. Um, but you'll notice, like, for example, here, this, this one, if you can, I don't know if you can read that, but it says Galatia. So when Paul writes his letter to the Galatians... Galatia is not a city, it's a region, it's a, it's a province, right? So, um, is that a Roman province? It is. It is. So this is Greece, obviously, a picture pulled off the internet of the Acropolis in Greece, no big deal. Um, and that's Rome, I took that picture. That is the temple of Saturn in the, uh, in the old Roman forum in the city of Rome. So... Um, in fact, I don't know if you can see it, but you know the expression, all roads lead to Rome, right? Well, they actually had a spot that they said, this is the spot in Rome to which all roads lead. And it's, it's right here. It's right in front of this temple. This temple was actually the, uh, the, the, the underneath here. That was the Fort Knox of Rome. That was their, their main treasury. So anyway, um, the gospel starts in Jerusalem and goes to the ends of the earth. And the ends of the earth is basically what we know of as Europe, but specifically Rome. Now, um, Paul may have gotten as far as Spain. There are some stories about that, but that's not reflected in the book of Acts. So we will talk about that, um, but uh, the book of Acts does not go that far into the story. But the point is this, that the gospel moves from the center of the Jewish world... Jerusalem, to the center of the Gentile world, Rome. 
And that's how Luke um, portrays it for us. That the, the gospel moves from the center of the Jewish world to the center of the Gentile world. And there's a sort of underlying uh, theme here. And um, I can't really draw it. But uh, if, if you think about the, you know, what, what some folks call salvation history, the history of God's relationship with humanity. Think about the history of God's relationship with humanity. At the beginning, God sort of has a relationship with, um, with all humanity. But humans sin. And so God creates a nation for himself, a people out of Abraham. And so this becomes sort of the chosen people. And it seems as though, as we read it in Scripture, it seems as though God's focus with humanity narrows down a bit. Not that God doesn't care about the rest of humanity, but God's focus seems to narrow. This is how it's presented in the Old Testament, right? And one of the things that, um, that comes as kind of a turning point in that process of narrowing down is the story in Genesis of the Tower of Babel. In Genesis, we read that um, humans were getting too prideful, and so God sort of confuses their languages, they can't communicate, and then they, they break up into factions which become nations, etc. Now, there's a lot of interpretations of that passage, some of which are not helpful. Um, and you can't simply use the Tower of Babel story as an explanation of why people speak different languages because it actually says right before that, leading up to that passage, that they already had different languages. So, so that's not really the point. But the idea here behind this is that at Babel, there was a kind of, if, if you'll allow the analogy, kind of a miraculous speaking in tongues, but it had the effect of dividing people. And then God's focus narrows to the chosen people. Um, well, in the book of Acts, the opposite thing happens because we see a miraculous speaking in tongues, but it doesn't have the effect of dividing people. It has the effect of uniting people. And God's focus is now no longer going to be only on the so-called chosen people, only on the Jews. God's focus is now going to be on everyone. Now again, you know, I'm not saying God stopped caring for people who weren't Jews or anything like that. But I'm saying that as it's presented in Scripture, we have this now opening up of access to God to all nations. And it happens, in, in a sense, at the Pentecost event um, where there's this miraculous speaking in tongues and the miraculous ability to understand people from other lands and that kind of undoes what was done at Babel or reverses what was done at Babel. So... Pentecost reverses Babel. So the book of Acts then is the beginning of a new age. And we refer to it as the age of the church. It's the church age. But it is an age in which the original promise to Abraham is going to be fulfilled. Because what was the original promise to Abraham? I'm going to make of you a chosen nation, but through you all nations will be blessed. I know that's a bad paraphrase, but you get the gist. So, um, Christ comes as the way to salvation, the way to reconciliation with God, right? But what is the way to Christ? The way to Christ is through the church. And so we, you know, we have this interesting paradox, uh, I guess, where um, you, know, you, you have the passage in John where Jesus says, no one uh, can come to the Father but through me. And the church believed that. And the, so the church taught that you know, if you want to get to the Father, if you want to be reconciled to God to the end that you are saved, you receive salvation, if you want to get to the Father, you've got to go through the Son. And theoretically and theologically, it would be then true that if you want to get to the Son, you've got to go through the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit is manifest in the church. So in a practical sense, what the early Christians believed was this. If you want to get to the Father, you've got to go through the Son. If you want to get to the Son, you've got to go through the church. Why? Because the church is where you get the sacraments. And it's the sacraments that connect you to Christ and, to the, um, and then to the Father, through Him to the Father. So, the church becomes the way to Christ, who is then the way to the Father and the way to salvation. 
And there are hints in the Gospels. Uh, there's, there's one passage in particular, and I didn't write it down here, so uh, I can look it up later. But, but there is one passage, there's a couple of hints, and maybe in the book of Revelation a little bit too, that to a certain extent there's this idea that when the Gospel reaches the furthest extent of the earth, then Jesus will return. That that's what he's waiting for. Now, of course, we know from our perspective that the world is a lot bigger than you know what the people in the Roman Empire thought of as the world. And we also know that to a certain extent the gospel has not reached every corner of the world. But at any rate, that there's, there was that kind of idea going around. Um, and this answers the question of why Jesus hasn't come back yet. I mean, when you read the accounts of the ascension, it, it feels like you know Jesus uh, goes up and you know there's an angel that says he's going to come back the way he went up and and you know very reminiscent of the the uh, angels at the tomb when why are you looking in here he's not here why are you looking up with your mouths hanging open right and there is a sense in which the you know you you get the feeling that the disciples then said oh okay he's coming right back and they started looking at their watches you know they had those little Fred Flintstone sundial watches. <laughs> Um, but then, you know, after a while looking at their watches, they realize, oh, okay, well, I guess he's not coming back right away. So they start looking at their day planners, you know, maybe a week at a time. And eventually they get to the calendar. But the point is, is why hasn't Jesus come back? He hasn't come back because the gospel hasn't reached the ends of the earth and because there are still people who haven't heard the good news. And so the kingdom cannot come until... Um, until the gospel is preached and all people are given a chance to, to turn to God. Which means that the age of the church has to come before the age of the kingdom or before the kingdom comes. And so we've talked about this before. If you've, if you've been with me when I've talked about um, you know, the, the kingdom sayings in the, in the gospels or uh, the book of Revelation, that we live in this in-between time. The time when the bride of Christ is engaged to her groom, but who waits for the wedding. Um, And so we live in the age of the church, the time in between the first advent and the second advent of Christ. Um, So even though the disciples ask Jesus, you know, oh, is this when you're going to restore the kingdom? Now, you know, in their minds, they're probably still thinking, restore the Davidic kingdom, the dynasty of David. And, but the answer ultimately is no, not yet, because there is an, an age to come before that happens, the age of the church. And um, this idea of restoring the kingdom, you know, if, if any of the disciples are still thinking of salvation in terms of you know, political independence or you know, uh, security from enemies and that sort of thing, you know, we are going to quickly clarify here that salvation is is not a political salvation or even an earthly salvation, but it's a spiritual, it's a heavenly salvation. It's, uh, it's a salvation that has to do with the afterlife, not the present life. So, so those kinds of ideas are floating around in the background here. And then we, uh, we go into the story and we first read about the gospel as it's presented in Jerusalem and then in Judea. Um, now, the first thing that has to happen is they have to replace Judas. Because Judas, there were 12 disciples, and you know there have to be 12 disciples because there were 12 tribes and 12 patriarchs. So the 12 disciples are like the, the 12 patriarchs of the New Testament, of the New Covenant. So there have to be 12. And Judas is out, so we have to replace him. And notice they cast lots. Did this seem weird to you? Like, you know, it feels like leaving it up to chance. But of course, in their minds, they're absolutely not leaving it up to chance. They're leaving it up to God. Very much in the Old Testament tradition of, you know, um, you know what you might call prophecy by throwing the dice. You know, that, that God will orchestrate the outcome of the lots so that God's choice comes out. Do you know that actually, um, I haven't quite kept up on this very recently, but the... Um, the patriarch of the Coptic Church, uh, one of our separated uh, churches, uh, the, the patriarch of the Coptics passed away, and they, uh, last I heard, were in the process of uh, of discerning a new patriarch. 
And um, by the way, the, our Egyptian brothers and sisters need all kinds of prayer because that is a mess over there. But anyway, uh, that's an aside. You know how they pick their new, they, they call him a pope, just like we have a pope. They call him their pope. Do you know how they pick their pope? They elect down to three candidates, I believe, and then the three names are put in a hat. I don't know if it's really a hat, but they have cool hats, so it, it could be a hat. Yeah, but the three names are put into some sort of thing, and a blindfolded child picks the name. Yeah. Now, there's a lot going on there. Part of it is this idea that God will orchestrate the outcome if left to, you know, if, if taken out of the hands of adult humans who are, you know, have their own agendas, right? Um, there's also, you know, a long tradition of the idea that, uh, you know, children are closer to God because they're more innocent, and that's a, that's a, a lecture for another day. But anyway, um, so they cast lots to replace Judas. And the, the main criterion here is that he had to be an eyewitness of the life of Jesus. So this tells you right away that there, there are 12 disciples who are named as the 12, but there were more than 12 disciples. And there are more than 12 disciples who were with Jesus throughout his whole ministry. And we know the names of some of the women, so you know we, we know about this. Um, at any rate, uh, because the church is going to be considered by, by the early Christians the new Israel, the new chosen people, and there are problems with that kind of thinking, but you know that's kind of how they thought of it. Uh, so there had to be 12, and so they replace Judas with uh, Matthias. And here's a little icon of St. Matthias. Um, now, unfortunately for Matthias, um, he, he still gets passed over a lot, because in, you know, as time goes on, who really is going to become the 12th apostle? Paul, right. And so if you go into the you know, basilicas of Rome, which you know, have 12 statues of the 12 apostles, sadly, Matthias is left out and Paul is, is put in. But, um, but anyway, he's the one who's elected. By the way, you, know, you, you can ask questions while I'm talking. Don't feel like you're going to interrupt. Well, you know, I mean, it's fine if you, if you uh, interrupt, that's fine. Uh, so, you know, yeah, there's a question in the back. Um, yes, in a sense. And when, when I've talked about this more in the past, we uh, go into the two aspects of the kingdom, that there is a present aspect and a future aspect of the kingdom. So that's a good clarification because the, the, the kingdom waits till later in the sense of its, in, in its fully revealed sense. But there is also a sense in which the kingdom is, um, is present and yet veiled. So you could say that it's being revealed if you wanted to talk about it that way. But um, normally the way I talk about it is that the, the kingdom has these two aspects, the, the present and the future aspect. In the present aspect, it's, it's concealed, but it's here. The, in the future aspect, it will be fully revealed. So you know, think of Jesus' parable of the mustard seed. You know, it's buried in the ground. It's there, but you can't see it. And then it blooms into the full-grown plant, and that's a, a, you know, an allegory for the coming of the kingdom in its fullness, which is you know, the, the future aspect. So yeah, so that's a good point. There are these, there are these two aspects of the kingdom. Alright, uh, so when we get to chapter 2 then, we come to Pentecost. This is uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. Pentecost, now the Christians didn't invent Pentecost. Pentecost was originally a Jewish festival. It's the Feast of Weeks, and the word Pentecost is uh, from Greek actually which means the 50th. It's the 50th because it's 50 days after Passover. And you can read more about you know, the, the Jewish Pentecost if you want to, but the point here is just to sort of, sort of demonstrate the, the, the timing. If Pentecost is 50 days after Passover, then you know, roughly speaking, what we have here is um, you know, Jesus' ascension is, is said to be 40 days after his resurrection. So about another 10 days have gone by. And, uh, and at Pentecost, Jesus' promise is fulfilled that the Holy Spirit would come. And there's a lot of interesting stuff about the Holy Spirit that uh, we don't necessarily have time to go into now. But especially in the Gospel of John, 
um, you know, Jesus talks about the gift of the Holy Spirit and what that's going to mean. Oh, by the way, this is a picture of the uh, what is what is said to be by tradition the tomb of Saint Matthias. It's in uh, Trier, Germany, and and here is a picture of the Holy Spirit uh, window from Saint Peter's in the Vatican. So the Holy Spirit comes now in the Old Testament. Only special people were thought to have the Holy Spirit. And in fact, John the Baptist is presented as the last of these. The idea being that the Holy Spirit is, is the inspirer of the prophets. And so, in fact, I noticed you got a Who is the Holy Spirit event. Is that coming up? Yes. Yeah, okay. So if you want to know more about the Holy Spirit, you can come to that. But, um, but, but what I want to point out here in the book of Acts is that... Uh, in the Old Testament, special anointed people have the Holy Spirit. I think I'm running out of battery is what's happening. Yeah, my battery's dead. So I have to use my theater voice. Uh, in the Old Testament, only specially anointed people have the Holy Spirit. And uh, in the New Testament now, the Spirit is a gift of the Father and the Son to all believers, all Christians. All Christians have the Holy Spirit. We read about this you know, in some of Paul's letters as well. And so, uh, the Spirit is a gift, and then the Spirit also is a source of gifts. Oh, we've got a battery. Thank you. The Spirit is also a source of gifts. We call them the spiritual gifts. And, um, and the immediate gift that the Spirit gives the apostles is courage. Because what you see happening at Pentecost is you see... Whoa, there we go. <laughs> Back to my inside voice. What you see happening at Pentecost is a group of people who's, who had high hopes for a mission and a ministry and a movement and whose leader was, was killed. Now, he didn't stay dead, of course. Uh, he was resurrected. Um, but he's not physically with them anymore. And so, they're kind of confused, maybe a little demoralized, but they're really, really scared because what happened to Jesus could happen to them. And the coming of the Holy Spirit, as, as it's presented in the book of Acts, gives them the courage and the boldness to be the witnesses that Jesus said they would be. This is, uh, and in fact, maybe you know this, but the Greek word for witness is martyr. So Jesus in Greek, now Jesus probably wasn't speaking Greek at the time, but I mean in the text written in Greek, Jesus says, you will be my martyrs. When we read, you will be my witnesses. Now, again, you know, at that time, it didn't have the technical meaning that it has to us. Later on, as we uh, see the church persecuted by the Roman Empire, the word martyr comes to take the technical term of not simply witness, but dead witness. You know, one who dies for the witness. It doesn't really have that meaning yet, but we're moving in that direction. Yeah, question over there. I think so. Yeah, I mean, I I think they are, and I think that um, I think that any of us would be, and and I really think that the upper room has become their hideout. You know. (laughs) Yeah, but he's Jesus, you know, and he still had to go through the cross. So they may have firmly believed, and I'm sure they did. They may have firmly believed that if they died for the faith, they would experience resurrection too. In in the way that humans do. Um, but you'd still have to go through the suffering and the death. So that's, you know, I think that's what any of us would be afraid of at that point. Um, I mean, we see it already in the text of Scripture, in the book of Revelation, but then, you know, moving on through the, the persecutions of the early church, 
the promise of Jesus is not, I will protect you from persecution. The, pro- the promise is, those who follow me in death will follow me in resurrection. But to get to the resurrection, you still have to go through the death. And so it's not Sunday they were afraid of, it was Friday. you know. But... Uh, all right. So anyway, um, we already kind of talked about the uh, the, the, the Pentecost um, as this sort of reversal of Babel and a miraculous ability to speak in and understand languages. Now, you may have had experience with uh, charismatic believers today, or you may know someone, or you may be someone who has um, spoken in tongues in the sense of an unintelligible language. That's not really what's going on here. Um, although, clearly, it did go on in the early church because Paul addresses the issue in one of the Corinthian letters. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's not clear what he means by speaking in tongues there, but he, he does make it clear that if someone speaks in tongues, it requires an interpreter. So we don't know if that means a prophetic interpreter who would interpret an unintelligible language or simply, you know, don't speak in Italian unless there's somebody there who can translate Italian, you know. Um, they didn't have Italian yet, really, but uh, you get the idea. At any rate, here, the point is exactly that these languages are intelligible by somebody. People are hearing in their own languages and it is for the sake of spreading the gospel. And the gospel spreads very quickly because people are in Jerusalem from everywhere. I mean, you saw that long list of place names. You know, always feel sorry for the person who gets that passage in, in Mass, you know, to read, <laughs> right? Um, but people are in Jerusalem for the Jewish holiday of Pentecost from every place. They hear the gospel, they bring it back to their home. And what we get then in the next in chapter 2 is what is in essence the first Christian homily or sermon. Peter preaches uh, a sermon in um, Acts 2 verses 14 to 41. There are a couple of things I want to point out. This is a picture of the statue of Peter in front of St. Peter's uh, Basilica in Rome. There is a statue of Paul in front of the Basilica as well, but um, we're talking about Peter now. Notice what he's holding. What is he holding? The keys, yes, because the keys of the kingdom are, is the authority to, to bind and to loose from, from Matthew. Um, in other words, to forgive sins or not forgive sins. And so, you know, whenever you see a statue of an apostle holding keys, that's your giveaway that it's Peter. Notice in the sermon that Jesus is called the Lord. This is verse 34. Now this gets back to what I was saying about how now in the New Testament, now in the church, salvation is not a, an earthly salvation or a political salvation. You know, in, in the Old Testament we have this concept of the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is a, a, a time that was looked forward to and hoped for a time when God would intervene in human history and wrongs would be righted, the oppressed would be vindicated, and the oppressors would be punished. This kind of concept, right? Well, in a sense, Jesus takes that concept and splits it in two because the, you know, on, on one level, the day of the Lord has arrived. Jesus has, has arrived. And so in that aspect of the kingdom that is present... The day of the Lord is here. But on another level, the day of the Lord is still postponed and is still future in that sense of the kingdom as future and and not yet fully revealed. But the point here that I want to make is that the Lord is now Jesus. So in other words, in the Old Testament, when we say the day of the Lord, we're saying the day of Yahweh, the day of, of, of God in the Jewish context. But now the day of the Lord is the day of Jesus. Now Jesus is Lord. And um, in the writings of Paul especially, the Lord will be one of his favorite titles for Jesus. And the important thing about this is that, remember, in in a Jewish context, you're not supposed to say the divine name. It, It would be irreverent to say God's name. I just said it a minute ago, but I actually try to avoid saying it just out of, uh, out of respect. But, um... You're not supposed to. And so if you're uh, uh, reading the Torah in a Jewish worship service, 
and you come across that name in the text, you don't say it out loud, you substitute another word. What's the word? Adonai, which means the Lord. So the Lord becomes a divine title. And now that divine title is applied to Jesus. And it will be consistently throughout uh, the, the New Testament. So now Jesus is Lord, which, is, which implies his divine status. Um, also, again, you know, we, we notice in the sermon the importance of the coming of the Spirit of God as, uh, as a sign of the dawning of a new age. This age of the church is the age of the Spirit. Um, remember that John said Jesus would baptize with the Holy Spirit. I baptize you with water, but one is coming who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Well, this is it, folks. The coming of the Holy Spirit is the dawning of the new age. And, um, and how, do you, how do you get the Holy Spirit? If, if, if all Christians can receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, how do you get the Holy Spirit? You get baptized. Baptism is how you receive the Holy Spirit. Um, and it's interesting that baptism, as the sacrament of initiation into the community of the followers of Jesus, baptism itself is said to remove distinction between people and equalize all people. Gentiles become clean or holy. Slaves become free. Remember Paul's statement in Galatians chapter 3. I should probably actually read this. How long will it take him to find Galatians? Galatians 3, you'll be very familiar with this. I'm going to read verses 26 to 29. For through faith you are all children of God in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free person. There is not male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, we, we know that. We've heard that before. But do we always recognize the connection with baptism? For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. And therefore, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male or female. And so, um, it, is, it is baptism that gives the gift of the Holy Spirit and that makes people equal uh, in, you know, within the church. Alright. Um, Paul will also say more about you know, the connection between one faith and one church and one baptism, but we'll, uh, we'll, we'll look at that later. Now, as, a, uh, as an example, you know, that's a picture from the Coptic Church of baptism. I just thought that was an interesting icon. Um, this is an uh, early Christian baptismal font, and notice uh, it is meant for full immersion, and it's shaped like a cross, and the idea is it's got stairs going in one end and out the other. You don't, you don't come out the same the way you went in, right? You go down into the water and you come out the other side. And you come out a changed person. This is why baptism is a sacrament. Because it changes the person. It, you know, you're not the same person. Even, even those baptized as infants are changed in a sense because um, you have access to this Holy Spirit. Okay, so um, Peter's sermon then, I said, is uh, our first written example of a Christian sermon or homily. And as an example of an early Christian sermon or homily, we can actually see what early Christian preaching was like. I mean, you know, this is clearly presented as sort of, you know, an exemplary sermon, an exemplary uh, or, or uh, you know, sort of the perfect example of early Christian preaching of the gospel. So, um, from this, we can figure out that early Christian preaching seems to have had four parts to it. And the first part is what I was just talking about, that um, it, the first part is an announcement, right? The, the gospel is good news, right? What's the good news? The good news is an announcement, something you didn't know until right now. The announcement is 
that a new age has arrived, and it is an age of the Spirit. We call it the church age, but it, it is the age of the Holy Spirit. So that's the first part, the announcement that a new age has arrived. The second part is then telling the story, retelling what Jesus did, um, very much in the tradition of a Jewish sort of remembering of the mighty acts of God in the past and history. You know, this gives you uh, faith for the present and the future by remembering what God did in the past. So it's a telling of the story. And specifically, in this case, the story all leads up to the passion of Christ, the cross and then the resurrection. This is uh, one of Salvador Dali's paintings of the crucifixion. I I guess it's supposed to be from the father's perspective, I don't know. But uh, I, like, I like Salvador Dali, so I couldn't, couldn't resist. Um, he was crazy, I admit that, but good, good artist. So the second part of the preaching then is the retelling of the story. The third part is a citation of Old Testament prophecies that were interpreted as having been fulfilled by Jesus, showing that he is the Messiah that was promised in the Old Testament. Citation of the Old Testament prophecies. In other words, these are given as proof that Jesus is the Messiah because His life and His ministry and His death and His, you know, harder to do the resurrection. But um, all these things are, you know, fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. And then the fourth part of early Christian preaching was a call to action, right? The, The so what question. What do I do now? Well, it is a call to conversion, but probably better to say a call to repentance. A call to repentance. What does it mean to repent, to turn, to, to make a U-turn, turn back to God? And the result of that repentance is forgiveness and reconciliation with God. But there is some sort of decision or commitment required here But it isn't simply an internal faith decision of the heart because there's something you have to do and that is get baptized. Now, um, as we read on, we learn about the first deacons. The deacons, uh, the, the deacons in the early church had a couple of jobs. One of which was to assist in baptisms. And there were deaconesses who would assist in the baptism of women because uh, when you went through the baptismal font, uh, often you went through either naked or you changed clothes as a part of the ritual because that symbolized the just what we read in the, in the passage, the, the clothing oneself with Christ, right? So if a woman was going to change clothes or uh, whatever, uh, you know, you had to have a, another woman who was assisting her go through the water. And so uh, so they had deaconesses to do that. The other thing that the deacons did was that they were um, trusted with the distribution of offerings. Believe it or not, taking the offering is, is part of the earliest liturgies, goes all the way back to the beginning. Why? Because there's always needy people and there are always people that the church is taking care of. And so the deacons are the ones who are entrusted with the distribution of the offerings to the people who need it. One of these deacons we meet is Stephen, who is uh, who we find out is the first Christian martyr in the sense of killed for his faith. And you may have noticed that Stephen's death is presented as paralleling Jesus' own death. So the passion of a martyr is following in the footsteps of the passion of Jesus. And in this case, both... Well, Jesus, what does he say? Forgive them, Father, they don't know what they're doing. Stephen says something very similar. When he's, uh, when he's being stoned, well, he sees... I don't know if you can see this, but he sees Jesus up here with the Father. There's, there's the Trinity up there. There's a little dove. I don't know if you can see it. But uh, as he's being stoned, he also prays that his killers would be forgiven. Now... Interestingly, as we read the martyr documents later into the church, by the time we get into the early 3rd century, there's a martyr document where um, just when you expect one of the martyrs to pray that the 
that the killers would be forgiven, this this particular martyr basically points to the crowd and, and basically says, "What you are doing to us, God will do to you." So you see, there's a, there's going to be a shift back to a sort of older, you know, retribution kind of theology there. But anyway, we'll, we'll, we'll get there. Um, right now, uh, Stephen is presented as uh, kind of another Jesus in a sense. Um, but when it comes time for him to die, whereas Jesus commended his spirit to the Father, Stephen commends his spirit to Jesus which again points to the assumption that Jesus has divine status. Jesus is not simply a prophet here, but he is, as much as God the Father, he is the one to whom you go when you die. And, uh, and you combine that with the title Lord, and you can see where, you know, wh- where they're thinking about Jesus is already. Um, the other interesting thing here is that, you know, where Jesus on the cross quoted Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's a quote, right? Um, Jesus quoted Psalm 22. Uh, Stephen quotes uh, Daniel, the prophet Daniel, which is interesting because I, I truly believe that when Jesus went around calling himself the Son of Man, he himself was making a reference to the prophet Daniel because in Daniel chapter 7, there's that stuff about the vision of one like a Son of Man. So Jesus is intentionally making a connection between himself and Daniel's vision. And I think this is reinforced in, in Stephen's quotation of Daniel as well. Well, the interesting thing about this is that now we, we begin to see persecution of the early Christians, but so far it's coming from the Jewish believers. And uh, you, I'm sure, noted that who was holding everybody's coats, but Saul, who will later be Paul. So not only does he approve of persecuting the early Christians, but he will become actively involved in it. And so um, persecution begins. But the interesting thing about this is that persecution is what forces the early apostles to scatter and spread the gospel beyond Jerusalem and even beyond Judea. Um, and so, the, the persecution literally forces the gospel to, to go farther out. Now, at the end of the uh, passage, or the, the, the section that you read, you came to the conversion of Saul, or who will be called Paul, and who will be considered the apostle to the Gentiles. And we, you know, we get this sort of traditional split um, between Peter and Paul, like Peter's the apostle to the Jews and, and Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles. But the interesting thing is, is as you read in the book of Acts, Peter, Peter converts more Gentiles than Paul in the book of Acts. So, um, you know, that doesn't really stick, but, you know, it's kind of a traditional way of looking at it. Um, but Paul gets permission from the leaders of uh, the Jewish religion in Jerusalem to go seeking out after Christians. And by the way, they weren't called Christians quite yet. They're simply called followers of the way. But at any rate, Paul is, uh, is on his way to the city of Damascus. Here's the road to Damascus, by the way. That is the Roman road to Damascus. Um, when he is confronted by the risen Christ... And uh, this is a painting by another favorite of mine, Caravaggio. And I apologize that it's kind of skewed, but it's in a small chapel, and you can't—you literally are not allowed to look at it straight on. And so that's the best picture I could get. But notice, here's Paul on the ground. He's been thrown from his horse. Now, the Book of Acts doesn't mention a horse, I don't think. But uh, it's going to... We're going to retell this story later. But the horse is like sort of a tradition that gets put in there. But, but Paul is... Uh, so so in, this, in this depiction, Paul is knocked off his horse by Jesus, who confronts him and says, why are you persecuting me? He doesn't say, why are you persecuting my followers? Why are you persecuting the church? He says, why are you persecuting me? And notice that Jesus here equates himself with the church. Remember the... The saying in Matthew 25, whatever you do 
to the least of my brothers and sisters, you do to me. So, why are you persecuting me? And and so, the persecutor will become the preacher. Of course, Paul, unlike Matthias, is not an eyewitness to the events of Jesus' life. He's going to have to defend his apostleship, especially if you read in the book of Galatians, the letter to the Galatians. He has to sort of give you his resume um, to defend his authority as an apostle. Um, But he will... Remember, now, the word apostle means one who is sent out. And, um, you know, the, the other apostles can claim to have been sent out by Jesus personally. So Paul's claim is going to have to be on the basis of his meeting Jesus on the road to Damascus here. And, um, and he will claim that it is in that event that he is sent by Jesus, that he becomes an apostle. But again, read Galatians and you know, he's going to give you his, his resume to try and you know, um, convince the audience, the readers, that he has the authority of an apostle. So we're going to talk about that a little bit more next time. Uh, my plan was from here to go into an introduction to um, Paul in a little bit more depth. But I'm going to save that for next week because we're out of time. But let me just say this, that um, here's a, a map of the Roman Empire. And you see we started here in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, Caesarea is on the coast here, Syria, and then here's Asia Minor, and then from here he will go into Greece and eventually end up in Rome. And um, and so I'll just say you know one more time that if you're interested in coming to Rome with me, um, the next trip is in May, and let me know so I can give you the information uh, because decisions will have to be made and deposits will have to be paid by uh, the end of this calendar year. And so uh, this is the the forum in Rome. That's actually the other side of the Temple of Saturn. But, uh, but anyway, if you're at all interested in this trip, uh, please send me an email or talk to me so I can put you on the list so we can get moving on that. Um, that's all we have time for today. Thank you for your kind attention.